the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is a bonus episode of The Impact. I'm Jillian Weinberger, and today we have a much chattier episode for you, a lockdown special in the midst of quarantine. I'm here with two special guests, Matt Iglesias and Nelifer Hedaya. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. Matt is the host of the Wonderful Weeds podcast here at Vox, and Nelifer is the host of Course Correction, a podcast from Doha Debates. Matt and Nelifer research and write about politics and policy and how the decisions powerful people make affect the rest of us. And we're here today to talk about all of that through the lens of COVID-19. Specifically, we wanted to look at how the numbers we've collected on COVID-19 deaths will help shape our world now and in the future. And we wanted to start with why these statistics are so important. It's a subject that we're all curious about, staring at these charts and things, but it also matters in hard terms, right? Uh, Governments make decisions about where money needs to flow and about what support hospitals and and communities need. And that's guided by this kind of statistical information. And citizens also need to know what's happening, right? There's this sort of constantly shifting guidance that everybody is getting about what you should do, what you should not do, especially in a large country, the situation can vary quite a bit from place to place. And people want local information about what's happening. And that needs to be accurate. But something, you know, any of us who've sort of reported on government statistics know is that it's it's sort of never as simple as it as it looks on a chart. Boy, is it not simple. And the reason that these death numbers are so fundamentally important is because to plan or implement policy without them is ludicrous, right? So any government or any country that's going around right now that's trying to get a handle on on how to ease lockdown and is doing it either in defiance or without any of these numbers um, is heavily criticised and rightfully so because to Matt's point, not only do we need to know just as, as society, but it talks a lot about that trust, right, between a body politic and the people who regulate and the people who make these policies for us. So I think measuring these things is as much about transparency and about trust as it is the truly horrifying toll this has taken across the world. Yeah, absolutely. So this kind of data is collected a little bit differently depending on where you live. Um, Starting here in the US, Matt, how do we do it over here? Yeah, I mean, sort of death tabulation in general, vital statistics, it's called, which is like births and deaths and other things like that, is this kind of incredibly analog process in in the United States. Each county normally has its own kind of coroner's office. They register deaths. They fill out paperwork. They usually hand it to a state agency. The CDC then collects information from different state agencies, puts it out. Some states report deaths very promptly, which means with a lag of a few days. Other states report deaths with a lag of a few weeks. So, I mean, this is not about COVID-19. I I mean, it's about COVID-19 because these are deaths. But in general, if you ever go to the CDC website and try to look something up, like how many people died last week, uh, you'll see it's incredible news. Way fewer people died last week than like any other week on record. And it's amazing. Like we all saved our lives. But it it's just a reporting lag. And one way you you really see this in COVID is that it always looks like there are way fewer people dying on a Sunday than on any other day. Um, and that's obviously not because uh, the virus takes the weekend off. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's because the people doing the paperwork, particularly in rural areas, there might be nobody working on a weekend. Uh, there might just not be that many people, and it takes a few days for, for the paperwork to get through. So you see these spikes on Tuesdays, these troughs during the weekends. Then it's just a reminder, like, this is done by human beings and not a small number of human beings. And, like, they're all in different offices everywhere. Um, and then they need to make decisions about what actually counts. And that, and that in itself is like, how do you define a COVID death, right? I mean, we're, we've been tackling that in the UK. I mean, up until very recently, up until the end of April, we were putting out daily mm -hmm. death tolls. But then the caveats were that in the United Kingdom, that only accounted for hospital deaths. That didn't count mm -hmm. for any deaths in the community, which is a huge problem because once the Office for National Statistics started releasing their data sets, the number sharply increased. And of course, after that, you get huge headlines. The media goes mental. The government is put on the spot. Matt Hancock, our health secretary, has got to stand there at that poor pedal stool, just kind of like looking on, just trying to defend these numbers. And the thing that I find difficult is, so let's just take this example within the UK of the Office for National Statistics. Mm -hmm. They don't just measure the number of deaths that are certifiably COVID related, but some that are presumed to be COVID as well. Versus what Public Health England puts out, which are the government statistics that say, no, only those that have been laboratory tested can be counted as a COVID death. Now, the cynic in me says, well, it's useful to be able to count it that way because the number's always going to be underestimated. Versus if you, if you have someone who has all the symptoms, but they haven't been lab tested. And when we reached our peak in the UK, there were reports by colleagues of mine that were really harrowing to think that coroners were having to do like tele, um, I don't even know how you would explain this, like almost like co coronate from a distance. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, yeah. um, but it's, it's kind of like easy for me now that we've kind of gone over our curve, that that peak to sit here and be like, oh, well, we should have done better. Um, and we should have because that's what the public deserves. Mm -hmm. These are each individual people we're talking about. But we weren't. We weren't doing it correctly. So now my fear is, does that mean that the lockdown has been prematurely kind of eased off? And, and that's the biggest threat. Right. And we had a similar sort of statistical change in the United States where initially they were saying a person who had a positive COVID test and then they died was marked down as a COVID-19 death. And that can create errors in both directions, right? Like, obviously, in principle, you could die in a car wreck and then they test the body and you also had COVID-19 RNA in, in your bloodstream, right? Right. Um, but then the other thing is people can die, especially in nursing homes or just at home, uh, without ever having gotten tested. And especially in New York City, which had by far the highest peak, you know, a lot of people who were very ill didn't make it into the, the hospitals. And so then there was a statistical revision to say, OK, well, we're going to presume that if you have COVID symptoms, right, in particular, severe pneumonia, and also you're dead. This is probably why you died, right? It would be an odd coincidence. Right. And so they count those all in. And then this becomes a bit of a sort of a back and forth where at least some people, I, I mean, I don't want to endorse this, but to a, a, at least explain part of the political debate is they'll say, well, you know, these are overcounts, right? Because you're talking about largely an elderly population, uh, which, which has passed away from this. And 
who knows why these people died? And and that's why you wind up needing to get into sort of more elaborate statistical checks, right? To see actually have more people been dying than you would ordinarily expect. Because otherwise, you're left with either undercounting by relying on the hard tests or else this slightly vague, like, well, she seemed sick and and, and she passed away. And I think when you do the excess death uh, method, like you, you can see, I mean, it's also common sense to anyone who has been in a, in a city that's been hit hard. They're like, yes, in fact, many thousands of people have been dying of COVID-19. But it, it's it's all up for debate on some level. But this is what's so like as, when you start to really dig into the numbers here, it, it does present a really problematic situation where um, Matt's point of these excess mortalities. So a lot of countries like here in the United Kingdom, we have an average for the last five years. So since 2015 to 2019, how many people on average were dying in, in the period, let's just say the first two weeks of April? Well, that number was this amount. Now we have all of these excess deaths, but not all of them are measured to be COVID deaths, right? So in the United Kingdom, consistently, week on week, month on month, that discrepancy between the excess mortality and the COVID-related mortality just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And some researchers at University of Cambridge have estimated that actually this could be off by 25% right? That's a quarter. And that's just not, a, a, you know, a percentage point here or there. That's huge. That's absolutely right. vast. And it has consequences. Right. And as Matt mentioned, in the US, the CDC changed how it's counting COVID deaths to around mid-April. Uh, so it looked like there was this huge spike all of a sudden, which did not make President Trump very happy. Right, Matt? You know, there have been Reports, a series of of reports indicating that President Trump and some of his advisors believe that the death toll is being inflated by these numbers. And, you know, this has been a consistent theme in Trump's thinking. One of his last rallies before people stopped doing rallies, he said that coronavirus panic was Democrats latest hoax that it started with the Russia hoax, then it became the Ukraine hoax, and now they were hyping up this virus to sort of bring him down. And then he shifted into taking it much more seriously as a substantive problem. But every once in a while, he kind of shifts back to the idea that his political enemies are, I mean, his political enemies are using the situation against him because it's a very bad situation we're living through. But he will then sort of veer into it's not just I'm being criticized because a lot of people are dying, but that the numbers are somehow being faked in order to make the criticisms of be worse. And then Dr. Fauci, he keeps saying the opposite, that if anything, the real death toll is being undercounted. I mean, I think that that's basically the situation internationally, that every place you go, they're not really able to fully account for every single person who who dies. Well, and and to add to that, so actually in a global setting, like some of the research that I've done, and and in fact, this this is a lot based on the Financial Times in in the UK, who have really looked at this idea of mortality really seriously. And 
you're right, Matt, all over the world, it's the same situation. You can look at Mexico right now and actually see that play out in Mexico City. The mayor is being accused of systematically underreporting it by an anti-corruption think tank, right? So this is a much, much larger issue. I mean, Brazil's got the second largest on average weekly death toll second to the United States. Similarly, I think Mr. Trump and Bolsonaro's kind of like idea of, well, if we test less, then there will be less. That kind of like double speak thinking leads to a situation where resources help services, medics, intensive care unit beds, they're either going to all just be oversaturated and people are just going to be flooding in, or you'll have hospitals that have been built in two months by the Army Corps of Engineers that never get used. So either way, this isn't to say that one type of politics is getting it right and another wrong, but it is pretty fundamental to make sure that whatever the numbers are, that you face reality. And Mr. Trump, just from across the pond here, guys, yeah. okay, we've got our own situation, but just, just to observe, from my perspective, it is astonishing to me to see politics lead the numbers and not the other way round. We did have kind of a version of that here. Our health secretary, Matt Hancock, recently stopped the international comparison charts that he used to show every single day in those Downing Street daily briefings uh-huh. up until the United Kingdom's numbers became the highest and we overtook Italy. All of a sudden, no, 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 (laughs) that comparison can't be made anymore because it's not fair and the data's collected differently and all this. And it's just like, okay, you guys really have to get a grip on this because, I mean, look, we're talking about this in a really non-personal way, but each one of us here is affected by this virus. I haven't, I, I can't think of a single person that isn't. And countries that are better at counting and better at um, understanding this mortality figure, I will bet you money will come out of it much easier or, or with less risk attached to it. There was this very ironic moment when Mike Pompeo, our, our Secretary of State, he tweets that it's no surprise that Taiwan has handled this so much better than the People's Republic of China because democracies with transparency and accountable governments can handle crises better than autocratic regimes. I mean, of course, I think he's absolutely correct about that. This is a a characteristic failure of sort of more closed, more authoritarian political structures. And of course, it raises the question of why Donald Trump is so much more determined to emulate PRC practices rather than Taiwanese ones, Uh, because this is a conflict that always exists, right? Political leaders always want statistical information that paints a happy face of whether it's a virus, whether it's gross domestic product, jobs, anything. But to get good outcomes over the long term, you need the information. If air pollution is getting worse, you want to know that so you can address it. If a lot of people are dying because of a virus, you want to know that so you can address it. And countries that prosper are ones in which you're not able to sort of sit on that kind of information. And when they're talking about other countries, like their critiques of Iran or of Russia or of China, uh, they understand this perfectly well. But then a lot of what the Trump administration has done has been to sort of undermine and erode those kind of same virtues here at home. Uh, Not to say we're as as far gone as as Beijing, but it's not a good trend. And it's, uh, it's strange to have him talking like that because, of course, 
our numbers are terrible. I mean, yes. the, the United States is now leads the world in, in cases. In part, that's because this is a, a large country. Uh, but even on a per capita basis, we are not doing very well. Which he also doesn't understand. <laughs> because, it's, it, but, I mean, per capita in relation to who? In relation to what? That was right? I mean, it's just, it's, yes. I couldn't. It's, but it's, it's, look, these are sombering numbers. No one wants to hear these numbers, but to not know them and then make policy and spend trillions or, in, or, or to forgive. De- the, the NHS was forgiven $13 billion, 13 to $14 billion of debt. Now, for the last 10 years, successive conservative governments have said that is impossible. We cannot forgive this debt, that this discrepancy is is bringing the NHS to its knees. We're going to have to think about privatizing, right? This was the chat right before the pandemic. All of a sudden, within one afternoon, it wasn't even a thing that made the news for more than 24. It couldn't last a 24-hour news cycle. This kind of situation is incredible. That actually reminds me of something we've seen play out here in the U.S. too, um, where for a long time, conservatives were really worried about spending because of our national deficit. Um, But once the pandemic hit, Congress passed this enormous stimulus package. Although I guess now that rhetoric is changing again. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's always shifting conversation about who needs money and who who deserves it and and why. And of course, the Republicans don't want to give money to New York. And, you know, it, it, it gets very messy when you don't have a sort of objective view on things. And then especially because they're so eager or they've become over the past couple of weeks so eager to lift restrictions, which, you know, everybody is eager to get out of the house and and do more stuff. But you would like to think that the people in charge are moving in a calm, rational, objective way, because the last thing anybody wants is to open up and we all have a lot of fun for two weeks and then it all goes back to zero. Now, what's the status of reopening in the UK? So the status of reopening in the UK is very complicated. We have four different administrative regions, I think it'll be easy to say. So Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England all have different strategies for lockdown. But we are being, I would say, very cautious because we have the highest death toll in Europe. Right. So we need to be very cautious in how we do things. And the first minister in in, uh, Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, has been very steadfast in her much more rigorous and slow unlocking process. Um, Whereas in the UK, I mean, remember, in the UK, we started off worrying about herd immunity. I mean, public officials were out talking about herd immunity. To think of that now and the barbaric nature of that kind of thinking is is insane because to, to even walk from my house to the park is now socially contentious, right? right? So the majority of the United Kingdom is being very cautious. Nicola Sturgeon is being cautious in Scotland. The um, health ministers in Wales are being very cautious, Northern Ireland. But we will get there. I mean, you can do some things like I was on the underground yesterday, right? I took the tube from from my house to my parents' house to deliver them groceries because I don't want my dad leaving the house. My dad hasn't left the house in three months. Wow. He's pre-diabetic. He's smoked all his life. If he gets it, he will die. (laughs) Yeah. So we are almost protecting him. Like, we're all taking it in turns and treating him very fragile. 
and I was on the underground and I wasn't wearing a mask. And oh my God, Gillian, the looks I was getting because it's now <laughs> it's now absolutely ingrained in us, right? So yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Can I go to a restaurant? I mean, I probably, by July at least, things will have eased off a lot more. Maybe I can go for a haircut. Maybe I can go to a restaurant. But will I? Right. And and these death tolls matter in, in your thinking about that and also just in how public officials are, are making these decisions. And so in the U.S., it's kind of a different it's a different story depending on where you are, right, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it's really been decentralized to, to, to governors. It was interesting. Uh, you know, the Trump administration, the CDC, put out a sort of framework for reopening that I think was a little laxer than what many expert groups had come up with, but that was similar, you know, in, in spirit, right? It had a set of objective criteria. And the idea was, well, you can move forward when you hit these kind of things. And then somewhere along the lines... It all just kind of fell apart. And a bunch of states with more conservative governors started jumping the gun, uh, which some other states are following that blueprint. So it's funny. So like in D.C., uh, where I live, which is a very Democratic jurisdiction, we are following the Trump administration's guidelines. Uh, Whereas in Texas and Georgia and Florida, where they're very conservative, they are being much more aggressive. Right. So in a weird way, it's like following the official administration rules is a sign of opposition to the people who wrote the rules, which is confusing. But in all cases, at least for the places uh, like D.C., like Maine, that are trying to have conditions based criteria, it's heavily dependent on test results. Deaths are are only one of the factors they look at, but it's all driven by the positivity rate the case numbers, the death toll, things like that. And hospitalizations. Yes. Uh, yeah. And and so it counts on, look, do the officials following that track record want accurate information or do they just want information that will say it's OK to open up? And so one question we've started to have is some states, it appears, are lumping together viral RNA testing with uh, serological testing uh, for for antibodies. And so those are two different things, but they're reporting it as a unified testing ratio. And I I don't think we know yet if reporting is happening to try to ascertain, is that a deliberate effort to kind of muck with the numbers? Or is it just a kind of mistake uh, because things happen in a a chaotic kind of way? But, you know, it, it raises the question again of the integrity of the data because it's sometimes being used as an input to decisions, but sometimes it's just being used as window dressing to kind of justify the decisions that have been made. And it's such a critical difference because you're going to have to make some individual decisions, right? Do, do I want to go eat on a restaurant patio when it's allowed? Am I going to let my kid play at the playground? You would like to have good information. You would like to be confident that the information is being produced in good faith and unfortunately, I think it's hard to always have that confidence. And I just want to mention very briefly what this is doing more generally about the people whose responsibility and job it is to generate this kind of data and statistics. The thing that I worry about, and this is something that we have covered in the Doha debates, is this idea of loss of trust, right? So the CDC, which for years has been a bastion of kind of understanding virology, understanding how vaccines are made and how epidemics spread, now doesn't have that same level of trust imbued in it. Because well, why are you publishing uh, these papers on how to ease down lockdowns after intense 
pressure from the press and the media? Why are you malleable to the will of the politicians and presidents and the White House? I think in the UK, we had this when we had the Office for National Statistics merge with what was coming out of the Department for Health and Social Care. On April 29th, it all kind of came together and and we had that shock of death toll numbers. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a reckoning when I think institutions like the, the CDC and others around the world, wherever it might be, I think that loss of trust is going to be a much longer term problem and issue. And the other thing I want to mention is at some point, guys, we are going to have to have that uncomfortable conversation about how we turn this lockdown, stay at home, don't leave the house, shut down the economy into, no, 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 we have to go out. We have to decide as countries, as nations, as communities, what that margin is going to be for us because we are going to need to take a risk. The difference is, and this is why the numbers are so important, is is it a calculated risk or is it just wishful thinking? Right, right. And I think that matters for individuals as well as policymakers. It it goes up to the highest levels of government and down to the individual decision about whether you feel comfortable, yeah, eating on a patio or just leaving, walking out your front door. I had a coffee from Pret yesterday. I nearly cried. (laughs) (laughs) How was it? Was it the best coffee you've ever had? It's the best coffee ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we were hoping to record this conversation in person at South by Southwest this year. Obviously, that did not happen. But I hope that when this is all over, we can all get a coffee from Pret or a taco in Austin. Thanks to Matt, co-host of The Weeds, and to Nellifer, host of the Course Correction podcast from Doha Debates. You can listen to Course Correction's entire first season now. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>